Hello, I'm Elder Greg Newman, and I want to welcome you to New Hope Fellowship Online. I want to thank you for tuning into this message. I hope and pray that it helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus and challenges you to study God's Word. If you'd like more information on who we are as a church, you are invited to nhfchurch.org. If you're interested in partnering with us financially to help us continue to share the gospel with those around us, visit nhfchurch.org and click on Give. Again, I'm thankful that you are here listening, and I hope you enjoy this message. Well, I say we are an equipping ministry, meaning that we look to equip both our facility, but also people. People matter, and the building is a great tool for us. This campus is an awesome tool for us to equip and empower people to go out into ministry. And so as we continue to dive into that, if you're new, we've spent the past few weeks kind of looking at who are we as a church And leadership is one of these questions that people look at and either say, I am a leader or I'm not. But if you were to ask me, I would say every one of you is a leader because if you define leadership more as influence, then all of us have influence, whether it's a little bit, whether it's a large bit. It just matters of where God has placed you in your families, into your jobs, into your spheres. There's people who you're around who you influence. And that's what leadership is, is you're influencing people and encourage them, hopefully, to make best right next decision. And, and when you look at leadership, when you look at hiring and within leadership of we look at a church or business, they used to say there's three C's. And these three C's were this, character, chemistry, competency. Each of those three areas mattered of if you're bringing someone to join the team, whether in business, whether in church, character matters. In the day and age we live in, sometimes that's not true because we look at the sports world and we'll pay a lot of money for someone who's really gifted, but their character is of ill repute sometimes. We look at that all the time and we see that on display, but character matters. Chemistry matters too, and chemistry being, do they work with the team that's in place? Will they come in and jive well? Do they connect in? And third is just because we like them, they're good character, and yeah, they gel with us, can they actually do the job? Competency. Can they do what we're bringing this person in to do? And then over time, as you work through these C's, they, they figured out there's actually a fourth C. There's probably going to be a fifth C, maybe someday too. But the fourth C is also important. It's called culture. That does the person, just because they can do the job, just because they fit with the team, just because they have good character, doesn't mean they fit the culture of the business or the culture of the area. And as we look at for our next family pastor, part of those C's we're looking at, character matters, chemistry matters, competency, can they do the job? But do they fit not just the church, us, because we're Christians and we like them, but do they fit the culture of the area too? Will they thrive in this area? And I bring that up because I, I would say during this series, and as well as we do this three times a year, that if you do these four things, it's not magic, it's not rocket science, that you will grow in your faith. And the four that I say is you're doing one of them. You're attending. You're just putting yourself in church to hear God's word preached, to be affected by it. And parents, you can say, well, I bring my kids and they fall asleep. They're listening more than you know. And though they might sleep, they're putting themselves in a position to hear God's word. The other one I'd say is you serve in some way, shape, or form throughout the year you serve, whether that's on our fun days. Those are the work days. We just call them fun days here. Whether you serve there once, twice a year, whether you serve in kids, youth, parking team, whatever it may be that you're serving, there's on-ramps and off-ramps to that. Next is there's groups that once we offer them three times, one of those cycles, you're in a group to get connected, to do the one and others of Scripture. And I said the fourth one is you give. 
financially. You start to financially give to the church. The 10% is what you shoot for. You may not start there. And if you are there, you kind of look at how do we grow that year over year to 11 to 12. You challenge, you grow. And I'd say the fifth one that I've been more learning through this past fall and going into this year is what I assumed people did. Because if you attend, you're doing something. If you're serving, you're doing something. If you're in a group, you're around people, you're doing something. If you're giving, you're still doing something. We forgot something. And that is just you and God being present with him, of taking that time through the week to just be with him. And I would say these four, or yes, are still right, but you need to add in that fifth of being, that I took that as a pastor, almost assuming I do that. Everyone, no, sometimes we neglect the being part. And if you do those five, you will grow in your faith. You will start to see growth. And it's not instantaneous, but it's over a period of time. That's why faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's consistently doing the right thing. How do you grow kingdom-minded? Well, it's doing that. It's being with God. It's giving back. And we're going to focus on that give part, but not maybe how you would think this morning, because I want to look at that generosity piece. Tithes and offerings are kind of a hot-button topic in churches. We don't want to talk about money. It's like, yeah, but Jesus talked more about money than really anything else in his ministry, if you look at all the verses. It's ridiculous how much, because he said it's not that the having a lot of money or having a little money is wrong or bad. It's the love of money, which is the issue, is the root cause. And so we want to look at this generosity piece, but before we do, we have to progressively get there. So we have to first start with understanding, and we do this as we come to Christ, the depths of God's love. If we recognize that piece first and build off of that foundation, then the rest starts to come more naturally. It doesn't make it easy. It just becomes more of an understanding. And when you're new to Jesus, you're in love with Christ, and you're on fire, we would say, and you're excited, and you're moving. And so I want to go back to some of that, the depths of God's love. And we find ourselves here, and the reason I want to start here is because people will work for the what, the what in life, but they'll give their life for the why. If you can give someone the why, I'm a millennial, so you can tell me this room needs set up. And if you were in the boomer generation, you say, okay, they told me, so I do it. I'm a millennial there. I'm going to say, why? Just because it does? Well, I don't want to do it. But if you can give me the why as a millennial, then I'm much more going to do it, and I'm going to do it with a lot of energy and enthusiasm. People will work for the what, but they'll give their life for the why. So why do we at New Hope do what we do? Why do we tithe? Why do we give? Well, it starts first with understanding the depths of God's love. And when you read in Matthew 13, if you're there, Matthew 13 is a bunch of parables and stories. The book of Matthew was written not to the Gentiles and the non-Jew, but more towards those that are of Jewish nature. So a lot through here is an understanding that if you read this, you, are, you understand the Jewish culture a little more than you would reading Mark. Mark is geared towards more the Gentile, the non-Jew. But in Matthew, he's talking about many of these parables. And if you're like me, you tend to put yourself into the story. And so if we read Matthew 13, verse 44, it says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. And if you're me, you're thinking, okay, I'm the man, and the treasure I found is the gospel of good news, and we're going to maybe turn that story on its head for you this morning just a little bit. What are parables? And if you were to read and read that Jesus teaches in story form, it was a way to teach 
and the common person could understand. And, and there was more innuendos in here and examples of what's happening. And if you were a religious leader of the day, you kind of understood when Jesus is teaching in parables and story form that the enemies are usually them and they don't like that, but they can't publicly get at Jesus because the crowd loves him. And so he would teach in story form and he would turn it on its head of, they had this thought and understanding the Jewish culture that the kingdom of God, when it comes, is going to be a political and military entity, that it's gonna come with power and authority and therefore God is going to establish his kingdom forever. That David back in the Old Testament and Solomon, those glory days, they're coming back when this Messiah gets here. And so Jesus, when he taught on the kingdom of God, he would use examples, the kingdom of God is like this, and if you were a religious leader, if you were a priest, a scribe, you would understand this is not how we understand the kingdom of God to be coming. And so when he says it this way, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man, and if you were to circle highlight a man, found and covered, and then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And if you were to highlight the field, there's twice that you highlight it. The story makes sense if we understood a little bit of the back story. And that would be that if you tended to work the field, if you were a, a, someone who owned a lot of land, you would hire hands to work the field. So you owned it, acres and acres of land, which meant that you could not, as an individual, cover all the acres. But under rabbinic law, one commentator writes, if a workman comes upon a treasure in a field and lifts it out, it would belong to his master, the field's owner. So if he takes this treasure which he has found and he takes it out, then it's no longer his Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? It goes back to the owner. And in court and in law, if this man whose treasure this has found, if he starts to show it off and takes it, the owner can take him to court and he has every reason it's his. So you could find a pot of gold and everything else, but it's the owner's. And this area of the world where you were talking about in Israel, which is modern day Israel, you would have in the south, you had Egypt, which was a superpower of the day. And in the north, you had Turkey above them and Syria. And in Turkey, you had the Hittites that formed into the Greeks, and you had a superpowers of its day. And then to its west, you would have the Persian Empire, or east, excuse me, you'd have the Persian Empire, which was also a natural superpower of the day. And they would all go through Israel. And as they went through Israel, battles were fought. These men are coming with gold. They're coming with all sorts of trinkets and treasure that would be lost. Battles were fought. There's probably hundreds of battles we don't even know about that were fought. And so as you're working the land, you would from time to time come across treasure, a ring, a gold coin, something of value, but it belonged to the owner. And what this parable is saying is that this man, this worker in the field, he comes across something so precious that he takes everything he has of his ownership and he sells it. He gives it, he takes the profit, and then he goes back to this field and he buys it because the owner doesn't know what is in this field, what treasure is in this field. And so he gives it away to this man who has sold everything, which is kind of like, that doesn't make a whole lot of financial sense. It doesn't make a whole lot of understanding why you would do this. But when you read this and you realize that the story as I would read it is, I'm the man, I found the gospel. Oh, okay, it's a cutesy story. Wrong. It's not you and me who's the man. That, excuse me, that man would be Jesus. He is the man who is, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure. Who's the treasure? You, me. 
And when he sees that treasure in the field, he covers it back up. Who's the principality of this field? Satan. So there's a cost associated. So what does Jesus do? He goes and he buries it, and then he sells everything he has. What does Jesus do? He left the kingdom of God in heaven, and he made himself at just the right time, became like you and me, a man to understand us, and then he bought us, cost him everything. And he's saying the kingdom of heaven is like this, that God sees you and me as precious treasure. And he loves us so much that he gave everything to buy us and our freedom back. And he goes further with it in verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Pearls were like the, the, the prettiest of the day. One commentator says that the ancient peoples, as we have seen, a pearl was the loveliest of all possessions. That means the kingdom of heaven is the loveliest thing in the world. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Yet again, who's the pearl? You and me. And he sells everything and costs him everything because he sees us as such great value. Spurgeon writes it this way, so did Jesus himself at the utmost cost buy the world to gain his church, which was the treasure which he desired. Pearl is us, the merchant is Jesus, cost him everything. It's the depths of God's love. Then we start to realize what it cost God, what he did for us. Then as we live our lives, what he asks of us has become second nature, should. You read in another text in Luke chapter 16, if you were to turn there, it's Matthew, Mark, then Luke, and it's halfway through Luke. Luke is a doctor. He wasn't one of the original 12, but he traveled with Paul and he wrote his testimony and he writes in a chronological order. So if you're ever wanting to know what order, what sequence did the Gospels happen with Jesus, Luke is the book to go to. And Luke writes it in sequence. And then you go to Acts and he tells you what happened after Jesus rose. What happened to the church? Where did it start? All that. But in Luke 16, he speaks here about a very specific incident. Excuse me, not Luke 16, Luke 7. I'm going to go back a couple of chapters. And in Luke 7, Jesus is, again, he's on the scene and he's speaking and then because he's speaking, because the crowds love him, he's gained an audience and a following. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day, they're interested. But they're more interested because their power is waning. Their authority is being kind of second nature to Jesus. They're going to Jesus over them. And so there's this sequence of events. In Luke 7, verse 36, that one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And so they, they tell you right off the bat, and I've, I think I've preached on this before, that as they comes into the setting, it would have been kind of like our campus here. There wasn't just, the, in the middle of the building was an open-air courtyard, and people could come in and out. So you, as a stranger on the street, could come in if there wasn't guards, but they would allow people sometimes in to observe, to watch, to just take in the conversation. And Jesus, being a celebrity that he is of the area, is invited into the religious leader's house who is a man of authority, a man of upstanding. And so it's not a simple little house. It's a known house. Jesus is popular. He's invited. So the crowds are around. And as the story continues, then behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And what you can picture in your head is some woman of ill repute, meaning could have been a prostitute, could have been a lady of the night. We don't know. It just says she's a sinner, which should mean a whole host of things, but it's one of the lower pegs. And you can picture her as she hears about this from the lady from the other side of the tracks who shouldn't be in this house, who should go nowhere near, 
the religious establishment and those of good character and upstanding citizens. You can imagine her thoughts as she walks across the town. Remember, there's no buses, there's no trains. Most people probably know who she is. She's not just lost in a city. She's known. And she meanders her way into this house, meanders her way around. And as she sits and she watches the conversations take place, Jesus would have been laying down. Now, in Middle Eastern culture, you don't sit like you and I do at a table. How you can, that is. But typically, you would sit with your feet facing back. You would rest on your arm and you would have a community table and you could have pieces of bread that you would have a community pot of food and you'd break your bread and eat it and you'd share. And you would talk with your feet facing out. Why were your feet facing out? Because you walked on the road with open air sandals where the animals also walked and where they defecated and did all sorts of things on the street. So your feet, as you're walking in a warm, dusty climate, your feet are soaked and caked in dirt and mud. And what was also traditional and customary is that as you entered a house, there was a bowl provided for you with a wash basin. And usually there was a servant who would then take off your shoes, your sandals, and wipe your feet. There's nothing better than on a very hot summer day to stick your feet in the crick. Yes, crick, not creek. <laughs> and it's that cold water that just refreshes you and brings vitality. And so any time in the Middle East when you go into a house at this time, you would wash the feet. And Jesus' feet have not been washed. They're still dirty from him tramping and walking around. And so as he's sitting there reclining at the table, it says, this woman comes in with an alabaster jar. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. What's all over his feet? And so with her tears, she is crying on them. And then she's wiping his feet with her hair. And then she breaks this ointment, which it's not some cheap perfume it's of a great expense and as she anoints his feet you could just imagine that it just permeates the whole room and everyone at the table though is this sweet smelling perfume and ointment saying and that's expensive where did she get that and the pharisee as you go on and read thanks to himself said so doesn't say it out loud thanks if that is jesus if he knew what kind of woman she is he wouldn't have her doing what she's doing and because Jesus is who he is, he's a son of God, he knows his thoughts, and he says, let me ask you a question, Simon. And he goes on to say, okay, let me ask me a question. He goes, now, if there was a king who was going away and he was settling his debts, and there was a man who owned 75 denarii, and I think that's what it's here, very small amount, large but small, and someone who owns really an exorbitant amount that you can't number. And he goes, and if the king forgives both of these debts, whom do you think is going to love the king more? Simon the Pharisee goes, well, I would imagine the one whose debt was greater that is forgiven. He goes, correct. And then he turns his back on Simon and he looks at the woman. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And he looked at her and he recognized her and he gave her value and worth when everyone else said she was of ill repute, no worth, no value, here is Jesus demonstrating, and again, the kingdom of God is not for those who have it all together, but it's for those who are humble, those who come and recognize, and Jesus meets you where you're at. And he loves her, and they begin to argue, who is this who can forgive sins? Because it's the depth of God's love, and he didn't just come for the Pharisees and the well-to-do and those of good report. He came for her. And you read about all that through the Gospels, 
that their assumption of the Messiah is to be political, power, authority, prestige, politics, and it's very much not the case. It is the depth of his love and care for us as individuals. No matter what we have done, no matter what we will do, his love can never be stopped or thwarted. And if we understand that, to be kingdom-minded is the depth of God's love, we kind of come to that when we get saved. So if you're not saved, you may not have recognized that. And if you are saved, if you go back to that moment where you gave your life to Christ, you kind of had that epiphany, that opening. And it wasn't that someone's magic words did that. It wasn't that someone said something just the right way. It was that God opened your heart. You see, I can't save people. You can't save people. You can pray for them. That's why I pray for soft hearts and soft minds because God is the one who gives the growth and the saving. I water, you plant seeds, or you water seeds and I plant seeds. It's God who opens the heart and saves. And when you get to that point, you then start to start on this journey. It's a fancy word called sanctification that just means it's a process of becoming more like Jesus. That's what that word means. If you ever come across it, it just means the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's Step by step, day by day, little choice by little choice. And if you realize that depth of God's love, then you need to remember who we serve. At six years old is when I would say I gave my life to Christ, but it wasn't until I was 16 where I owned my faith and said, I need to make a clear, I'm, not, I'm sitting on this fence, straddling the fence of one foot in, one foot out. I know what to say on Sunday. My dad's a pastor, I grew up in the church, but I'm not living it through the week. And when you know who you are, then I like to say, then you know what to do. If you know who you are in Christ, you know that's what defines you, then you know how to live. I'm a Dunn, so I was raised as my dad raised me, so I knew we Dunns do this. This is what we do. You raise kids, you raise people around you, and you teach them this is who we are, this is what we do, and surprise, surprise, they do that. Why do your kids imitate you, and when they get to four, five, and six, and they say things, you're like, where did they learn that? It's not a question. You, they learn it from you, your words, your actions. They model, they pick up. It's the same with Christ. We model, we pick up. And if we know who we are, we know what to do. So we need to remember who we serve because as we walk with Jesus for any length of time, sometimes it gets a little, I wouldn't say boring, but we get a little lost sometimes in the details. And we get so in the mundane at times that we lose sight of the big picture of what am I doing why am I here? Is God really real? Is God really going to show up? Is God going to save here? We forget. And so if we turn just a couple more chapters to Luke 16, this comes into play. In Luke 16, verse 10, it says this, Jesus is speaking. He says, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. So if you're going to have a little and you're dishonest, you have a lot and you're going to be dishonest. You have a little and you're faithful with it, and you have a lot. You're going to be, it's cause and effect. That's what you see. If then you, who, if then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to true riches? And is the unrighteous wealth, it doesn't crack on money, but it's the unrighteous. It's, it's not going to make you holy with God. Finances, they won't do that. Now you're to be a wise steward. You're to care for it. You're to manage it well, all of that. But he's saying that's, that's unrighteous. It's not going to make you righteous by having a lot of money, by giving a lot to charity, by giving a lot to the church, by being, that won't make you righteous. And if you've been unfaith, and been, not been faithful then with unrighteous wealth, you've squandered what you have. We all have different cards, by the way. Some of us have a lot, some of us have a little. The point is not to have a lot, to have a little. The point is, will you be faithful with what he's given you? 
He's saying, if you've been unrighteous within the wealth of this world, who's going to trust you with true riches? And his true riches, if you were to highlight, circle that, is people. True riches, heaven. Who's going, money's not going to heaven. Who's going to heaven? People. And so our influence, our possessions, our things should be used in such a way that how many are we bringing with us? Who's coming with us? And so he goes through that true riches. Who's going to trust you if you've been unfaithful with the unrighteous wealth? Who's going to trust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you what you, which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Commentator writes, Jesus seems to refer to the fact that all our riches belong to God, and we must see that we are managing his resources. Faithfulness in this will result in blessings that is our own. One can have both money and God, but one cannot serve both money and God. And we can think that someone who is poor, who has very little, is not greedy or that wrong. Someone who is poor can be very greedy and very much love money. Just as much as someone who has a ton of money could not say, I don't love it, and they really don't, and others that do. Jesus spoke to the heart here. And many people would say they love God, but they serve service of money. But their service of money shows that, in fact, they don't. How can we tell who or what we serve? One way is by this principle. You will sacrifice for your God. So if you will sacrifice for the sake of money, but will not sacrifice for the sake of Jesus, don't don't deceive yourself. Money is your God. And I say this because remember who we serve is that as we walk with God, life presses in. And we have to remember, is God faithful? Yes. And what does he let us do? He lets us be disciplined, which is not punishment, but growth points at various points. And who did Jesus tend to in these parables and stories? He tended to attack the religious rulers, which in the very next verse says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, you can see his his aim wasn't the, the average person sitting here. It was the religious leaders of that day who were also in the audience And he's challenging them, not so much the regular folks, to say, you love that money. You have high prestige. And he's saying the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Pretty much, literally, they stuck their noses up at him. And when truth comes into our lives, if it hits close to home and it's not done in a proper way or with gentle tone or with love, we can get a little defensive, And many of us, if I were to show of hands, would probably say you've probably had conversations where truth has been shared in a not-so-pleasant way, but it hits dead on the money, and you're like, man, and you start to justify. You start to make excuses. You start to, because it really wasn't done very kindly, and Jesus kind of calls them out, and so they're just, but, 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 excuse, excuse, excuse. Jesus hit at the heart. You can't serve these two masters. You can't live in the world and be separated from it. You're either for me or you're against me. You're neither this or that. In fact, when you read Revelation, if you put your finger here and go to the very last book, there's a church that gets nailed for this. In Revelation 3, there's letters written in this first part of Revelation to these different churches. As a, some churches are doing well, some churches are doing not so well. And this church that we're going to look at is not doing so well. In chapter 3, verse 14 of Revelation, it says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. 
So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. (laughs) Kind of gross. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Which is sometimes where we get in our walk with Christ. That God provides for us, and we have an abundance. And money can hide a lot of things and make life very easy. And so we tend to say, oh, I've done this, I've done this. You read Daniel, read about the king, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who says, look at Babylon, what I have done. And God says, okay, I told you if you do this. And he humbles him, makes him go crazy, and he becomes like a wild animal until he acknowledges who he stands before God. And here, this church in Laodicea, they have come to know God. They have understood the depths of his love, and things are going smoothly, warmly, great. Well, we did this. And they're patting themselves on the back, and look at what we did. Look at us, look at us. And so they're half in with God. They're not fully focused. They're not fully in. And they're a little bit in the world because it's, it's nice. It's easy. If things of the world, if sin wasn't fun and pleasurable, we wouldn't do it. The point is, it is. It is fun. It is pleasurable. The problem is, it's not good for us. And long term, it has its sinking hooks that will cause death and destruction. And he's saying, you, you started off this well, but now you're kind of on this straddling the fence of you got a foot here with God. On Sundays, you look the part, you act the part, but man, through the week, you look like someone totally different. Because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out because you think you've got it all, but in reality, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You think you've got it all figured out. You've got this, instead of serving Christ, you've lost your way, and you're starting to serve the two masters. Proverbs 3, 9 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of your produce, then your barns will be full to overflowing. Because God looks at our heart of what we serve, and you can change from money to anything, kids, job, house, social status. All of it fits in there. What God wants is our heart, and he's saying money speaks so highly of it because it is such a temptation to move us. So why does he call us to tithe and to give? One is to get at our hearts of not just in our world and where we live, but in our money as well, to say that can take hold and take root. And in our world, if you don't think we're rich in the Western Hemisphere of the United States, we, no matter where you're at financially, you are rich. In so many ways in the rest of the world, you have clean water. You can go to the grocery store and pick up food. It's all of these things that go into play, and what he's getting at is I want your heart, and we sometimes as we go through life, we get a little cozy, we get a little comfortable. I mentioned our Grow With New Hope, and we're going to have some cool news if you're coming out to the pizza party uh, to share first there, then we'll share with the rest, but you're going to make it out there. But as I was listening to one of my friends, and I, I mentioned this already, that he, as he gave to the Grow With New Hope, and he talked to me, he goes, you know, I was listening to a sermon and he goes, the Old Testament speaks about tithing, and you know, there's 10% is what tithe means. And he goes, but in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of sacrifice. He goes, so we want to sacrifice, so we're, we're giving. And it was a big gift. And it was humbling for me to see that and to see that modeled of that concept that he's like, how do we do this? And him and his wife are both in agreement. They, they talked it over, the way they work, they kind of look at things. And they both kind of get together and they start to pray about, you know, where do they want to give? And then they say, okay, let's, let's go. And they pray some more and they come back and say, what's your number? What's your number? And I say, not, most times it's within a handful of dollars of what they want to give to different, from the, they tie to their church. They also go to missions organizations and they want to give here. 
And it was just humbling to see what they gave, but also the fact that they're willing to recognize God wants our heart. The money's there, great. One quote says, money, possess, money possessing a man is the is a direst of curses, for it hardens his heart and paralyzes his noblest powers. But the money of a God-possessed man is a blessing, for it becomes the means of his expressing his sympathy with his fellows, living generously. That as we know the depths of God's love, we have to just be mindful that as we walk with God, it's that faithfulness piece we talked about a few weeks ago. Faithfulness isn't glamorous. It's continuing to do the right thing. Day in, day out, small choices that over the long period of time end with the bigger results. You reap what you sow. And so in times of the mundane, in times of life, when it presses in, we can kind of get either cozy, comfortable, and we tend to pull back. And we're, not, we're saying, we're okay, we're, we're, I'm generous in my giving, Nick. I'm generous there. Are you generous with your time? Because generosity is much more than just a number. Sometimes we're stingy with our time, but great with giving money. Sometimes we're great with giving our time, but not our money. Sometimes we're great with giving our things away and holding them loosely, but hoarding our other things. God says, no, no, generosity is much more, it's all of you. I want pieces and parts, and money is a part where we can say, okay, God, I trust you with my life. I'm also going to trust you here. I'm going to hold things loosely with an open hand. And it's amazing to watch when you start to do that, not instantly, but over time, as you give, not just your money, but your time and your talent, you're investing in people. When you give yourself generously to people, you're investing in the kingdom, discipleship. You don't get a big result with one-on-one, -on -one, but over 20 years, one-on-one, -on -one, that's a lot of people. 